0: Several years ago, um, in another town, at another church, on a Sunday morning, our service had concluded, and people were standing around fellowshipping, and someone came up and handed me two giant boxes of donuts. Now you're thinking, what is it with this guy and donuts all the time? But it's so much worse than you even know. But for some reason, these donuts were given to me. Apparently, a local donut shop owner was trying to get the word out that he was now open on Sundays, and he was getting the word out by giving boxes of donuts to churches. So the donuts were given to someone in the church, and they were handed to me. So of course, I opened up the box, and I bit into one of the donuts, and it was maybe the most magnificent donut I had ever tasted. I mean, In that moment, two thoughts went through my mind my goodness, this is is the best donut I've ever had. This light glaze, a little bit of a crunchy exterior, the soft, delicious inside. That was my first thought. And my second thought was, how am I going to get these two giant boxes of donuts out to my sweet minivan without anyone noticing? I decided against it. And honestly, probably not because I wanted the joy of sharing this delicious manna from heaven with my beloved brothers and sisters. I just didn't want to get caught. And, and for your part, now you're only judging me a little bit, am I right? Just a little bit, because you have a sense of your own um, bent in your own self, in your own heart, that, that bent with that same impulse. Maybe not with donuts, but, but with something, maybe money, money. Possessions, pleasure, applause, something where your heart screams, me first. My skin is the one that matters here. I don't care so much about everyone else. Right? We have this first impulse in us, each of us, that, that my needs, my desires, my opinions, my preferences are the ones that really matter. And we might play it off like it's no big deal because everyone has this impulse, but but is that true, that it's no big deal? Jesus was asked in Mark 12, which commandment is the most important? Mark twelve twenty nine. Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these it's known as the great commandment. And if this is the great commandment, then, then any measure of failure here is most certainly a great transgression. It is a big deal. It's a great transgression because this failure to love God like we should and love others, even to the extent that we love ourselves, is a failure to reflect the image of God. When we are turned inwards, when we are self-first, we are entirely unlike God, and we lie to the world by asserting value and glory in self rather than in God. We we tarnish the image. We consider who God is. Consider the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From all eternity, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit have been pouring glory and joy and love into each other. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. Each member is about the other. And so love didn't ever come into being. God didn't create people to have someone to love. Love has always existed within the Trinity. And love comes to us as an overflow of the love within the Trinity. C.S. Lewis writes this in The Problem of Pain. For in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of all being. For Jesus gives himself in sacrifice, and that not only on Calvary. For when Jesus was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness, from the foundation of the world He surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. There's a lot to think about there, but this earth is the wild weather of his outlying provinces. Jesus left heaven to be born here on earth as a baby, ultimately to suffer and die a gruesome and excruciating death. And his submission to the Father's will was not simply an isolated occurrence. It demonstrates his posture from all eternity. From all eternity, he has been submitting. He has been seeking not his own glory, but the glory of the Father. In going to the cross, he was showing us something of the very heart of the triune God that has been there forever. There is an otherness in the heart of God that demonstrates the giving up of preference for the sake of another the giving up of glory for that of another, and while sin is self-focused, love is other-focused. Sin is turned inward; love is outward. And this otherness is actually—it's actually what is natural in the sense of original and created purpose. In that it flows from the nature and character of eternal God. It has always been. And what we have been seeing in Acts is actually a return then to what is natural. What we're seeing in Acts is a a return to the way life was created to be. When we see the miraculous in Acts, the the miraculous, it's not a violation of the natural world. It is a return to that which is natural. When, When a cripple is made to walk or a blind person made to see, or a dead person raised to life, that the natural order is not being violated, it's being restored. When sins are forgiven, rebels are brought back and made sons and daughters as they were at the beginning and as they will be for all of eternity. When the Spirit of God comes on people, they are being restored, they are being remade, they are reborn be what they were created and recreated to be. They are becoming other. Acts 4.34, there was not a needy person among them. Acts 2.45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See, a new people has been created. It's the body of Christ, the community of believers. The community of believers was being created as its members were being recreated. A new impulse was compelling these first Christians. They were other-focused to the point of selling their property and giving the proceeds to the apostles who could distribute it to those in need. It seems incredible to us. But what seems so impossible, what seems so unnatural, is made possible by God himself through his spirit at work in the hearts of people. We've seen this in particular from the apostles. So so compelled by the love of Christ that, that they aren't so worried about saving their own skins. That They stand before the authorities and say, we don't answer to you. The authorities who would like to have them done away with and have the power to make that happen. We don't answer to you. We answer to God. So we're just going to keep on preaching the good news about Christ. Do to us what you will. They're more concerned about the glory of God than their own skins. And now Stephen, I read about Stephen this morning. I mean, don't you just love this guy? He's not an apostle, but he's just absolutely all about ministry. He, he wants the glory of God to be made known. He wants the gospel to go out. The apostles were called to, called to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Right? And, and from last week, they were being pulled away from that to make sure everyone had enough to eat. And this was an important ministry, but it was not their primary calling. They knew they needed to be about the ministry of the word and prayer. They call in Stephen and the others to handle the distribution of food. Something needs to be done for the sake of the gospel to go forth. What does Stephen say? He says, I'll do it. The way I picture it, Stephen, we need you to, I'll do it. We didn't tell you what it is yet. Well, will it make the gospel known? Will it glorify God? Will it, will it advance the kingdom of God? Then I'll do it. Waiting on tables? Sure. Changing diapers? Okay. Stacking chairs? Inviting people into my home? Let me know. I'll do it. I'm so grateful we have, we have many people like that in our midst this morning who gather here and call Calvary Severance their home, who will do whatever needs to be done for the sake of God's kingdom. And that's Stephen. He's feeding people, he's organizing ministry to widows, he's easing racial tensions, and then, in his spare time, working miracles and preaching the gospel like few others have ever done. He's just a man, living at a level that we're all called to. And if you thought you had an excuse for your life because, well, Jesus, I mean, he was God in the flesh, so... Um, Paul, Peter, John, I mean, they were apostles. They had a special calling on their lives. So, of course, they were sold out for the gospel. But, but Stephen, Stephen's just a man. And he's described in Acts 6 as full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Acts 6.5, Stephen is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Faith is trusting God, trusting in who he is, Trusting in what he's done. Faith is trusting him rather than trusting ourselves. Trusting in his work on our behalf rather than our own good works. Trusting his will for our lives. Faith is not a one-time event. It's a continuous action. Stephen has come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin. He's the only hope for sinners. He's not just Savior, but Lord Stephen trusted in God's sovereignty, trusted in his wisdom, trusted in God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, and he lived in surrender to God's authority. He was full of faith. Every one of us is called to faith. Unbelievers, you are called to faith as well. You are called to repent and believe the gospel. Christians, there are times when we are Filled with fear, or filled with doubt, or filled with ourselves. So we need to live in a continual state of repentance. We need to be full of faith. Our lives should be dominated by faith. And also by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying, don't be under the influence of spirits. In this case, alcoholic spirits. But rather be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We too should be dominated by the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like? What is it to be full of the Holy Spirit? Is is that merely something that happens to you? Are there some words you have to say? Do you just have to ask? We have responsibility in this. We're not merely passive. Like when you're in school and you have a big test coming up the next day and you know you should study. You know you should study, but instead you go to a movie with your friends and hang out with your friends and kind of don't study. But the next day you do pause for 20 or 30 seconds to pray and ask God's help on your test. Isn't this what happens? And, And what should be your expectation of how you're going to do on that test? And if you, if you fail this test or do poorly, will it be your lack of faith that has caused that? Did God fail you in not answering your prayer? The true faith involves obedient action, praying for God's help, and doing what we should do. You have a rash on your neck, so you go to the doctor. The doctor says, what you need to do is stop drinking Mountain Dew. Yeah, okay, whatever. Um, you go home. A couple weeks later, you still have the rash. You come back. And the doctor looks at your rash. He says, this is really strange. I, I would have thought it was just the Mountain Dew you're drinking causing this rash. I mean, you did, you did quit drinking Mountain Dew, right? Well, I mean, no, I didn't really want to do that. So what will the doctor say to you in this instance? You point to the door and say, you can leave now, and then come back when you've done what I told you to do. God has a prescription for us to grow our faith. We ask, yes, we seek, for sure, and we engage in obedient action regarding what he has told us to do. So what is our part in growing our faith? Well, Romans 10.17, for example, says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. What can you do to to grow your faith, to trust him more, to be dominated by your faith in Christ? Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Not like a magic formula, but our part is to fill our minds with the word of Christ, to fill our minds and our hearts with Scripture. Likewise, how can we be dominated by the Holy Spirit? Going back to Ephesians 5, Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's verse 18. Verse 19 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, which is important because it reminds us of something something else that Paul wrote. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You might need to study this this week or talk about it in live groups, but, but you'll notice Ephesians 5.18 and 19 and Colossians 3.16 are just about the same. But notice that Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Being filled with the Spirit, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly are not two separate concepts, they're very tightly interwound. They're very closely connected. You won't be filled with the Spirit without being filled with the Word. One of the great works of the Holy Spirit is to bring to mind, to remind us of the words of Christ, John fourteen twenty six. You can't be reminded of that which is not in you to be reminded of. So being filled with the Spirit is not merely some random act of divine magic, as some people think of it sometimes. It just happens while we lay on a couch and binge watch some show on Netflix. We ask, we seek, we we do our part, we fill our hearts and our minds with the Word of God. We bank on the Word of God as our only hope. We turn to the precious promises of the Word of God to combat whatever spiritual sickness afflicts us. And we ask. God is not obligated to grant us mercy. He doesn't owe us spiritual power. He doesn't owe us that our hearts would be on fire for him, but letting the word of Christ dwell in us. I liken this to loading up on kindling, bringing kindling to a fire. Kindling is not the fire, but kindling fuels the fire. For our part, we load up on kindling and cry out to God that he would Light the fire in our souls of a passion for his name. This Stephen, he had a forest of kindling. He knew the Bible like few others, better even than the religious professionals whose job it was to know and to teach the scriptures. It dwelt richly within him. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was full of grace, full of grace. He's generous. He gives of himself. He, He gives to his opponents and forgives his enemies. Most pointedly, we'll see this at the end of chapter 7 when he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, them being the people who are killing him by throwing rocks at him until he dies. See, his response is grace being for someone who's against you. He's full of grace because he knows the grace that's been given to him. That while he was an ungrateful rebel to God's authority over him, Christ died for him. While he was a sinner, Christ died for him. So he understands grace, so he can give grace. And he's full of power. Full of power, which is manifested in signs and wonders. Miracles were a, a validation of his ministry. They, they showed people that he was speaking for God. What we've been saying about miracles and signs and wonders is that, that they're not the point, but they point. A road sign points you to where you need to go. In Stephen's case, the signs pointed to his credibility and the credibility of the message. And the message pointed to the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asa, rose up and disputed with Stephen. These synagogues were likely, likely comprised of descendants of those liberated from slavery or imprisonment following the war in the time of Pompey. They would have been comprised of Jews from various parts of the Roman Empire. These are the synagogues of the freedmen. And amongst them, there were some who rose up and disputed with Stephen, which doesn't mean they threw hands, they weren't brawling here, but but they were disagreeing and they were debating. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace. He's full of faith. So he's going to stand in and love even his opponents and share the truth and fight with them for their own good. So they're discussing passionately, no doubt, each firmly committed to their position Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Couldn't withstand it. What they were debating exactly, the text doesn't say. I suppose it has something to do with Jesus fulfilling their scriptures, which we know is the Old Testament, how how Jesus was actually the fulfillment of the law, and how the temple that, that they treasured so immensely was actually just a sign that pointed ahead to Jesus. More on that here in a bit. But it doesn't seem like it would have been difficult for Stephen to speak of the life of Christ and then take these people to Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or any other number of scriptures that so greatly demonstrate that Jesus was the Christ. Understandably, then, those engaged in this debate could not withstand Stephen. Even though they knew the words of Scripture, Stephen knew not only the word, he knew what the word meant. He knew what it was about. He knew what it was for. John 5, verse 37. Jesus said this, "...and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen." and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, their knowledge of the scriptures was worthless because they didn't actually know what it was about. It was about Jesus, and they refused to see that it was about Jesus. Even when Stephen was connecting the dots for them and doing it so compellingly that they couldn't withstand his reasoning. So What do you do when you can't refute the truth? When you have no good argument, you just know you can't believe it. You don't want to believe it. You attack the person bringing the message. Isn't, isn't that what people do? Have you ever had that happen to you? Someone brings something to you you don't like, something about you, maybe a character flaw or something you've done. And, and a lot of times our first impulse is, not really to deal with that, but to think of some terrible thing that that person has done? Oh, sure, but what? look, you're terrible too. But that has nothing to do with what's being said. We can't handle it, and so we attack the messenger. That's the condition of sinful hearts. So desperately clinging to the beliefs we want to hold that we will... Shut out or shout down or otherwise stop the source of the arguments. Whether they're true or not, it doesn't really matter. They, They don't have an answer for Stephen. They just, they knew he needed to be stopped. So they're reduced to scheming, we read in verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and Seized him and brought him before the council. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses, who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So let's take a look at this accusation. I mean, it sounds like something Jesus said, doesn't it? False witnesses said in Mark 14, 58, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. In Mark 15, the crowd mocked Jesus as he was dying on the cross. Verse 29, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They thought, he had said something about destroying the temple. And he did, according to John 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and and will you raise it up in three days? This is Jesus, just after he had cleansed the temple. Cleared the money changers out. The place that was to be the center of worship of the one true God, they were violating by turning people's attention other places and excluding people and otherwise diminishing the worship of the one true God. Jesus cleared them out. And as he's talking about this in John 2, there, there was something they didn't understand. John reveals in verse 21 that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Speaking about the temple, his body. They didn't understand it when he said it. Even after the crucifixion and the resurrection, they didn't, for the most part, understand it then either. But Stephen thought about it, even considered, and Stephen was given eyes to see what it was really all about. Jesus is talking about the end of the temple. The temple was the center of religious life for the Israelites, the place of sacrifices where. Blood poured out to make atonement for sins. The place where priestly activity surrounded the holy place in the center of the temple where God's presence dwelt. It was incredibly glorious, reminding God's people of the unfathomable glory of their great God. And part of what they failed to understand is that the temple was not an end in itself. The blood sacrifices, for example, were never intended to go on Forever. They, they pointed ahead to the perfect sacrifice that was yet to come. The blood of bulls and goats, actually a reminder of sin. A reminder of a debt that has to be paid. A reminder of guilt. The blood of animals could not actually take away sin. So when Jesus died, when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was sacrificed... Once that happened, the whole sacrificial system was obsolete. It became unnecessary. It was now pointless. The shadow had made way for reality. The whole basis for the temple was destroyed. So in destroying Jesus and crucifying him on a cross, the temple was destroyed by Jesus in his death. Speaking of the finality and perfection of Jesus' sacrifice, Hebrews 9.25 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But whereas the other sacrifices were all insufficient. The sacrifice of Jesus was so perfect, it needed to be offered only once. And now, once offered, all other sacrifices are meaningless. And regarding the office of priest, Hebrews 7, 7.23 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There is no longer any need for temple priests. The curtain in the temple was torn in two at the crucifixion. The way into the presence of God was made wide open. No longer is the blood of a freshly sacrificed animal necessary, nor is someone to offer that sacrifice. No longer is a go-between necessary. And back in Acts 6, verse 7, it said, A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many priests realized they were out of work. Nothing left for them to do. Their function was no longer necessary. Jesus had come as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, supplanting all other sacrifice, and he continues on as the ultimate high priest and intermediary between God and men, making the priesthood obsolete. Not only have the blood sacrifices and the temple priests become obsolete, the, the glory of the temple has now been replaced by the glory of Christ. 1 Peter 1:21 through, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Where would you go if you wanted to see the glory of God? No longer to the temple. It was a shadow. It was a sign pointing to Christ. And now he has come. It is no longer necessary. Its relevance is destroyed. You go to Jesus to see God's glory. He is the glory. He is the presence. He is the new temple. Revelation 21, 22, and 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So, if Jesus said he would destroy the temple, and, and Stephen understood that, he understood what it meant, and he explained it, repeated what Jesus said, why are people who are saying this false witnesses? Verse 13, they set up false witnesses. Because a true witness would have said something like, Stephen here, he's claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Stephen is claiming that the sacrificial system, with all of its repeated blood sacrifices, finds its final fulfillment in Jesus. Stephen is saying that Jesus is the prophet predicted by our scriptures. Stephen claims that Jesus is the true temple, and the old temple is now obsolete. See, that would have been a true witness. But the witnesses reported only this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, which was not true. Stephen spoke for the temple. Stephen spoke for the law more than they ever did because he understood what the temple and the law were all about. He understood the glory of that which they pointed to. Our illustration about people visiting Mount Rushmore from a few weeks ago, and they find a sign that says, Mount Rushmore this way, and and these tourists get out and circle up with the sign and get their picture taken and high-five each other and go home. Right? Can you picture that? And it's silly because the sign is not the thing. The temple, as glorious as it was, was not the thing. It pointed to something infinitely greater. And Stephen pleads with them to see it. He's not down on the sign. He wants them to see what it is the sign is pointing to. But they refuse to see it. For reasons that go back to that inward bent that we all start with. They didn't see it because they didn't want to see it. Even when they couldn't refute his logic. Couldn't refute his use of the scriptures. and adding to their guilt, verse 15, they could see that his face was like the face of an angel. Which I take to mean he had a glow. Like Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai after having met with God. Or Jesus at the transfiguration. He had the look of a guy who had been in the presence of God. Not the look of a guy who was a blasphemer. You may have noticed there are a lot of similarities between Stephen and Jesus. Both were accused by false witnesses, charged with blasphemy for making threats against the temple. Each commits his spirit, we'll see in the next section, and each asks for his enemies to be forgiven. Let me give you one more. Each man took up his cross. Each man took up his cross. Luke 9 23. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus denied himself all the way to the torture of the cross. His life was not his own. He lived for others. He lived not to save his own skin, he lived for others. Stephen knew what it meant to follow Jesus. It was to take up his cross daily. The cross was an instrument of execution. It brought death to those who took it up. So those who would take up their cross daily would die to themselves every day. Die to their own desires. Die to their own dreams. Die to their own comforts. Die to their own kingdoms. And seek first the kingdom of God. On January 20th, 1936, on the death of his father George V, Edward VIII became King of England. He was nearly 42 years old at that point and a bachelor. King Edward then made known his desire to marry an American woman named Wallace Warfield Simpson, who he had known since 1931. He sought the approval of his family, the approval of the Church of England, the political establishment to marry her, but for Various reasons, this was met with strong opposition. You can imagine there were some sensational newspaper headlines, right? The royal family has been a thing for a long time. Headlines around the world, a storm of controversy, and none of it could sway Edward. On December 10, 1936, King Edward VIII submitted his abdication, and it was endorsed by Parliament the next day. He thus became the only British monarch ever to resign voluntarily, he resigned, gave up his rights, gave up his privilege, gave up the glory that was his as the king. Compelled by what he thought greater, he abdicated the throne. Much like Jesus gave up the privilege. And the glory that were his as the second person of the trinity to take on human flesh and to die a criminal's death. And again, this act of submission was not a one-time deal. This is who he has been for eternity. And, And he's making us as believers in Jesus into a people who abdicate the throne of our lives and live for the glory of God and for the sake of others. That's what explains Stephen. We read about Stephen and think, what an extraordinary guy he was. Was he extraordinary, though? Compared to other people, sure. Compared to who he was created to be. Compared to who God made him to be in his image. Compared to who we, as God's people, are being restored to be. And one more thing maybe you think about. You You might wonder, would I stand up for Jesus like Stephen? That guy couldn't stop saying the very words that were getting him killed. Words of grace. The way of salvation for his enemies. And so rich was his relationship with Jesus that, that death for, for the sake of Christ to him was gain. You wonder about that? Would I do that? Kevin DeYoung said this. I grabbed onto this thought. The way to speak for Jesus then is to walk with Jesus now. The way to speak for Jesus then is to walk with Jesus now. It's to take up your cross daily and follow him every day, throughout the day, living in surrender. God, not my will, but yours. God, your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. What do you want me to do today? How do you want me to live? What should my life be about? See, before Stephen was called on to give his life, he had been giving his life. And may we be people who live the same way. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for... Your life given for us, your blood shed for us, your body that was crucified for us, the perfect sacrifice, the only way our sins could ever be forgiven, paid for once and for all. May that be our great reality. And for any here who aren't believers, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn themselves and turn and trust you and commit their lives to you. Thank you for the life of Stephen that was poured out too. the example it is for us and how we can take up our cross daily and follow you. Pray that your life do that in us that You grant us surrender. Thank you for people around the world even who uh, your people giving their lives the sake of the kingdom, giving their lives because they believe in you. pray for protection on our brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, I think especially Ukraine and Russia, these times, pray that you'd protect your people, that you'd bring them through, that you'd grow your church even in the midst of chaos and turmoil, that you're still in control and you're still good and you're still protecting your people. I pray that you would... Grant each of them and grant us that we would continue in faith to the end of our days. We ask for it in Jesus' name.